When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Hello, I'm Anne McElvoy, and you're listening to The Economist Asks. And this week we're wondering how the art market is changing at a time of disruption. Across the world, art, old and new, is being sold for eye-watering prices. The wonderful Monet Haystack here from 1891. Great Picasso, nude green leaves and bust. Sold to you, Margo, at $72,500,000. Nick, your bidder at $95 million. Sold here, 1561. Picasso Van Delger, selling it here. For the historic sum at $107 million. $160 million. Sold. It's yours, sold. And although the older masterpieces attract buyers with the deepest pockets, living practitioners are also the recipients of very hefty sums. Contemporary artists Tracy Emin and the painter Peter Doig set records for their works in one evening in 2014 at the auction house Christie's. Two million, two hundred thousand pounds. Sold. Eight million eight hundred thousand. Congratulations. But there's more to the story of how art is bought and sold than just the price tag. It's a world driven by subterranean interplay between dealers, clients and artists and the auctioneers and gallerists who make up the market. Later in the show, we'll discover what it's like for the artist when their work becomes a hot commodity. And I do actually remember having all this success and then having to make that painting that Saatchi was waiting for. And I remembered it being hard. And finally, Philip Hook, author and expert at the auction house Sotheby's, discusses the dealers who made art history. He said, you look at a painting like that and what is money? First, though, economist Richard Davis and Fiametta Rocco, our books and arts editor, sat down to talk about a controversial new player on the scene. The high end of the art market has always been quite conventional. The dealers are posh, the auction houses are old. But according to one man, the way we buy and sell art has become completely outdated. It's elitist, and if he's done his job right, it's in retreat. As its disruptor, Stefan Simkovitz has become the most hated man in the art world. He's been criticised for introducing unwanted volatility and turmoil into the art market. He's been called a Sith Lord and a Satan. But is he really the predator his critics know him to be, or the art world's saviour? Richard Davis, a writer and former chair of the Council of Economic Advisers, profiled Stefan Simkovitz for our sister magazine, 1843. Richard joins me on the line now from our New York office. Richard, welcome. Thank you. Richard, now you've followed Stefan Simkovitz to the auction houses and galleries where he operates. Before getting into what he does and why it's so unpopular, give us a sense 
of what he's like to meet in person. Uh, he's quite a character to meet in person, and he really doesn't fit with the art world mould, uh, which is the one you set out. So your typical art world dealer wears a very conservative blue suit, white shirt, smart shoes, and so on. Stefan Simkovitz turns up in kind of alternative-looking clothing, trainers. He wears a camera around his neck at all times, and he's constantly recording what he's doing. So I witnessed him at Sotheby's at one of the the big London auctions last autumn and he was bidding on paintings right up there with some of the the, the richest uh, investors in, in the art world and but simultaneously at the same time taking photos of himself and them that, so that he could record it on his Facebook page. So he's he's very much an alternative character. I think that he, he wants to stand out, he does stand out and this means that he gets a lot of coverage from the traditional art press. Now, you describe in your article how art is generally bought and sold. You've got your primary market, the galleries, then your secondary market, the private market, and third, the buying and selling at auction. What has Simkovitz done to disrupt these conventional markets? Essentially, the accusation is that he, in a sense, turbocharged them. So exactly as you set out, when an artist brings their work to the market for the first time, they will go with a dealer. That dealer manages their career, uh, will make books about them, and will talk to museums about them, and will manage the prices of that, the, the, the artist's work. Once it has been bought once, it can either go into the secondary market or at auction and can be sold immediately. And so the what a gallerist wants to do for a young artist is for their work to be sold, it to go into the hands of a dealer who will hold that piece of artwork for a long time, ideally forever, and will also do things like loan it to museums and so on. What Simkovitz is accused of doing is buying things from the primary market and then very quickly promoting them on Facebook, on Instagram, trying to create a buzz about them, and then immediately selling or flipping them. Now, that would seem on the face of it to be quite positive. It creates business all round. Why has the art world got so riled? The main reason is volatility. And I do think that they have a point in the sense that this is a market where the highs and the lows are extreme and rapid. So just to take a, a few examples, the reason I originally got interested in this market was in 2014, a series of artists, often young men under the age of 35, were kind of grouped together by the markets. And suddenly the prices of their work shot up. They went from around £40,000 sort of $50,000 in London and New York to well over £200,000 in the space of three or four months. They then collapsed almost overnight and went back often to below those previous prices. The accusation is that Simkovitz and others like him that flip art create this volatility. And the problem, the reason why this is not like other markets, perhaps, uh, for example, markets for stocks and shares go up and down, and there is still then value in, in buying the, those shares low, is that you, you damage the market, you erode trust in people that have invested at the top they then hold are holding something which they they liked as well as want to invest in but they've made a big loss on it and the concern is that these young artists then because of that spike the market for their work is damaged perhaps irrevocably there are real victims here i mean there are artists who become victims there are galleries who've invested time and money and effort 
in boosting those artists. If prices go down, they suffer too. There is a real genuine accusation. What do you think Simkovitz's response should be to his critics? I think his response is pretty clear. We discussed it at length and and, um, he set it out. His response is that the market does not work. It's too narrow. All he is doing is bringing new players into the market, new investors, new artists to the market. And in the short term, if that creates a little bit of volatility um, with a, a number of people affected, then that is a price worth paying if in the longer run you end up in, in a world where more people know about art, more people care about art and and more people buy art. He is somebody, he's not just an investor, he is a man who believes that pieces of artwork can change the way we think about the world. And so his overarching aim, I think, interestingly, while his practice, the way he goes about what he wants to do is very different from traditional art dealers, his overarching aim, which is that there are interesting messages um, that the artwork can convey, is very similar. He just wants to do it en masse and to the largest number of people as possible. You've talked earlier about trust, and I think that's a very important word. In many ways, your article is about the role of trust in markets. When there's no longer trust in the market, it grows increasingly volatile and becomes more dangerous. Then there are victims. Simkovitz has been accused of stoking mistrust in the art market. You're an economist. so In your view, do you think he's opening up the art market or do you think he's destroying it? I think he's doing a little bit of both. He is opening up the art market in the sense that some of his customers are certainly people who would not normally go to the well-heeled dealers of sort of the Upper East Side. And as well as bringing more customers, that is investors into the art market, he also includes in the people he invests in some very alternative artists that I think the other uh, galleries would not invest in. So he's certainly on his own terms opening it up a little bit. At the same time, he and the people like him that are involved in fast trading of art are certainly causing some destruction. And you mentioned trust. It's a, it's a strange world, Fiametta. This is a market in which often people are not allowed to buy the paintings they want to buy because uh, dealers want to know exactly who it's going to and whether that person is a good quality investor. And there is this complicated network of people buying paintings for other people as agents. This is a methodology that Simkovitz himself were, uses, sort of standing behind somebody else that's buying. And so it's, a, it, it, it's sometimes an even paranoid market where people really try and dig into the background of the people investing in them. So that part of his role, eroding trust, is certainly destroying the market as it is. But I think that he would actually see that as a good thing because he doesn't like the market as it is. Simkovitz is certainly an odd person when you see him in the room at auction. I mean, he dresses strangely. He doesn't look like anybody else. He jumps up and down from his seat. He doesn't sit where he's supposed to. What made him like this? I was standing uh, with the other journalists in in the Sotheby's auction where I first met him and he really causes a buzz. Just the way he holds his paddle, uh, when he bids, he really goes for it. As you've mentioned, he he moves around a lot. I think part of the difference is his background. Um, He started off actually as a Hollywood film producer and was one of the people credited with producing Requiem for a Dream. But he's South Um, African originally, isn't he? he? Originally, he is South African. 
but he is extremely Californian in his outlook, very kind of into disruption. He lives in Los Angeles. His clients are young and famous people, Orlando Bloom and Sean Parker. Uh, his partner uh, is an ex-model. So he, he is a kind of um, as Californian as they come uh, with, a, with the, the, this South African background. And I think what that means is that the art market still, although the West Coast of America is important, although China is important, New York and London, with their slightly old school, old fashioned approach, is still the hub of the art market. And that's the thing that he would like to disrupt. That was Richard Davis talking to Fiametta Rocco. But what's it like to be an overnight sensation in the art world? And what effects does the money and sometimes the notoriety have on creativity? Cheryl Brumley, our senior producer, spoke to one artist, Chandra Singh, about her big break. Chandra Singh was a young art school grad when she took up a studio in New York. Her story was very similar to many other 20-somethings, artists unknown, living in a big city. Until one day, it wasn't. The whole building has collapsed. The building has collapsed. It literally blew itself into World Trade Center. So this looks like it is some sort of a concerted effort to attack the World Trade Center that is underway. In an apparent terrorist attack on our country. Chandra's studio and home was a block away from the World Trade Center's Tower 2. And on that day, I was there, and I had a little studio there, and um, I lost my home and my studio. And I'm a survivor of 9-11, like I was one of those people who was, you know, underneath the tower and was covered in all the debris and saw a lot of bad things. The trauma from 9-11 kept her from picking up her brush for a while. I really was a survivor. You know, I really, all of my work comes from my own personal experiences. And so it's like when you experience that, what do you do? But she didn't stay away for long. One of the only items intact in her apartment was an 8 by 3 foot canvas. On it, she painted a portrait of the Trade Center Towers. It took her a year. One side depicts Muslims praying in a tower, and the left side depicts every single person who passed away on 9-11, totally 2,915 people. It was a very personal work. I didn't allow anybody to see the painting while I did it for a whole year. Nobody could see what I was doing because it was purely something I needed to do, and it was almost something that was like sacred, like a ritual. After that year, she went to grad school and further developed her style. I make these really large paintings, and they're not necessarily, you know, they're not easy to put in a house. They're not abstract or small. They're, you know, they're aggressive. They're expressionistic. In other words, her work was a hard sell. Her art dealer, Peter, suggested they re-strategize and try and sell her smaller work instead. I was driving into the city with these works on paper, and I was, re- I was actually worried because I really didn't have any money left in my bank account. Like, I, was like, I was like, oh my God, I don't know what I'm going to do if nothing sells. And I've worked so hard for a whole year making these huge paintings. And then on the way, all of a sudden, uh, the phone rings, and it was Peter. And he said, Chandra, you know, I'd like you to know that Sachi just bought the Lazy River painting. And I just... I dropped the phone and screamed, because I knew what that meant. That's Saatchi as in Charles Saatchi, one of the world's most influential collectors. What it meant was Chandra's life was going to change. He's made the career of so many, so many artists. He then put Chandra's work on his website. And since Saatchi is a huge market player, her work almost overnight became a hot commodity. Other people come along and they want, and, and like, a, like a stock market, they want to see what he's buying. Because once he buys your work, you know, say my first painting sold 
for fifteen thousand or ten thousand dollars, and then in my next show it was selling for thirty thousand dollars. So right away, people just started buying all the rest of my show, and my show completely sold out. And then everything out of my studio in Poughkeepsie in Hudson Valley sold out also. So like I had nothing left. She felt in that moment as if she had come a long way. And I did think about nine eleven. I did think about wow the journey of my life because I actually lost everything on that day. So coming from a place where I lost everything. To this point, was kind of just like a wow moment. But she became aware very quickly that this success could be a poison chalice. I think art, essentially, the best art is in a weird way made privately. Even if you are the most famous artist in the world, you know, you, you protect that kind of inner space. That's what creativity is. You know, you don't want to care about whatever everybody else is thinking. So when you have that big jump, it's it, it is tricky. And I do actually remember. Having all this success, and then having to make that painting that Sachi was waiting for, and I remembered it being hard. She claims it wasn't the money that intimidated her. I just think that people's expectations could corrupt it. The art market will throw you around, will bring you up and bring you down instantly. Eventually, she found a way to cope with the art market's fickle nature. I don't live in Brooklyn. I don't live in trendy areas, and I do it all kind of purposely to protect the art. This might sound cheesy, but sometimes you put the right song on too. <laughs> And you shut out, ev- and you shut out everybody. You shut out everything in your life, and and also, you know, you, I, I'm, you know, going back to the 9/11 experience. You know, I did that painting because I needed to do that painting, because it was it was beyond the art world. It was beyond everything, and so, you know, I go back to that place, not the paint that 9/11 painting, but that place where you need to make something. You're making it for for bigger reasons. You're making it. You're making it because you love to make it. That was Cheryl Bromley reporting on Chandra Singh and the intricate relationship of art and money. But what are the trade secrets of the industry, and what role have dealers played in making and breaking careers down the ages? Philip Hook is senior director of Impressionist and Modern Art at Sotheby's, and he joins me now. Welcome, Philip. Thank you. It's good to be here, Philip. You've just published Rogues Gallery. It's a history of art and its dealers. And before we dig into that, give us a brief lesson on how you sell art. Well, the thing about art is that it has no objective value, and so what art dealers are actually selling is, in essence, fantasy. It's dressed up very grandly, but it is it is fantasy, and for that reason. It is almost impossible to be precise about what any given work of art is worth. So there's a great elasticity in the prices of art, and many dealers' price systems have a degree of what can one call it romanticism. So, what is it that the dealer is trying to do, in essence? Well, the dealer is the middleman between seller. And buyer, and of course, there are two sorts of dealers. There are the dealers who are concentrating on older art, art by artists already dead, and there are those dealers who are selling the art of living artists. And I think the second category is also a very fascinating one because the process is different once you actually have the creator of the work of art involved in the process. And I always think that the great modern art dealers, the art dealers who pioneered works of art by avant-garde contemporary artists, were a bit like two-way radios. 
they received information from the artist and interpreted that to the collector. But at the same time, there was also the information they received from the collector that they would interpret to the artist so that there is a sort of constant two-way flow. Uh, And the best art dealers of contemporary art dealing with living artists are absolutely expert at this. I was interested in how you chose the period that your book covered and what that would tell us then about when this becomes a business in itself as opposed to an offshoot of patronage. Is it the Renaissance or is it something a bit finer? I think essentially it's really the Renaissance. And I think one of the reasons why it's the Renaissance it's, is because of the perception of what art is at that point. That for the first time, the element of genius enters into the equation. The great artists of the Renaissance were for the first time acknowledged as being great exponents of the liberal arts and in that sense capable of genius and once you're selling a work of art which is not just the work of a highly skilled craftsman but actually the work of an artistic genius then you need a different sort of selling capacity and that's what dealers started to provide So gradually and rather organically, this becomes a business in itself. And the attitudes of the dealer or the middleman or whatever you want to call it changes along with that. Give me an example. I think William Buchanan's an extremely interesting example. He masterminded an awful lot of sourcing of great Renaissance masterpieces in Italy and bringing them over to Britain for sale to often the sort of people who would have gone on the grand tour but couldn't be bothered to. This is roughly when? This is round about 1800. And when he could not get the supply anymore out of Italy, he started looking in other directions. And he went to Spain, which was a novelty. People didn't really know about Spanish painting then. And one of the great pictures he sourced in Spain and brought into Britain, you will now see in the National Gallery, it's the Roque Venus, the wonderful Velasquez. But uh, he had a hard job selling it. It wasn't a bad bet, was it? It wasn't a bad bet, but, but no one in Britain really understood it. And because it wasn't by Titian or it wasn't by Michelangelo or it wasn't by Leonardo, the value was a lot less. But it was quite funny because the first owner who'd been prevailed upon to buy it in his uh, house in Yorkshire wrote a letter to Walter Scott saying that he had a tiresome day spending it trying to rehang the pictures in his drawing room in order to accommodate his new picture of Venus's bottom. What about the relationship between dealers and their clients that you cover, you would think it would be amicable to the extent that the great thing from an artist is finding a fantastic dealer and ka-ching as well as producing some great art and getting it seen by the right people. But you quote a former chairman of Sotheby's where you work, Peter Wilson, as saying, there are only two things of any importance in the art market. One is a dead client and the other is a dead artist. (laughs) Is that because it limits (laughs) supply or it makes life less complicated? I think essentially it makes life less complicated. It's a reflection of the fact that to some dealers, having to deal with a living artist is just an annoyance too far. And 
to some sellers, auctioneers, art dealers, the ideal property to sell is a deceased estate because there's no owner to answer back. The artist Marcel Duchamp called dealers lice on the back of artists. Why was there that hostility, particularly in Duchamp's case, and is that a widely held view? I think there's always this question in artists' minds as to what exactly is the markup from the price they're being paid, the amount of money they're being paid by the dealer and what the dealer is actually getting from the buyer. I mean, I think 100% markup from the cost price is generally accepted as okay. 100%? Well, pay £50, sell it for £100. Has that changed much over time? Would we find that 100% markup going back to some of your earlier middlemen? I would have thought as a rule of thumb with dealers selling contemporary art, it's broadly at that sort of level, yes. It hasn't changed much in the centuries? Probably not. I mean, if you read the correspondence between Camille Pizarro, the Impressionist, and Durand Ruel, his dealer, there is constant toing and froing with Pizarro complaining about how much more Durand Ruel is adding on to the price that he's given him, i.e. Pizarro. And sometimes it's even actually more than 100%. But you have to factor in that at that point, Pizarro was not going to get anything remotely as much anywhere else than from Durand Ruel. There are examples of very accomplished salesmanship in the book and some that went a bit awry. But which would you pick out as a good textbook example of great art dealing? Well, I love the the sheer strength of will of Frank Lloyd of the Marlborough Gallery, who was a leading dealer in contemporary art in the sort of 1970s. He had a wavering client to whom he was trying to sell a Francis Bacon. And the client said, well, I like the picture, but I don't think my wife does. And it doesn't really go with our decor. And Frank Lloyd said very firmly, you can change your wife, you can change your decor, but once you own this picture, you will not want to change this bacon. And the cowed collector bought the picture, divorced his wife, and redecorated it. Again, arguably a very good investment. (laughs) Well, indeed, yes. How much money do you think is too much money for a painting? Is there any limit to your view? And you, you handle very expensive works in, in your day job. But is there any limit to your mind about what monetary value should be? In this respect, I really love the comment, the quote from Paul Mellon, the great collector, when he was asked after he'd paid a world record price for a Cezanne in the Goldschmidt cell in 1958, a wonderful Cezanne, he said, you look at a painting like that and what is money? Now, it's a very good way of expressing the pricelessness of art, but it's also an extremely exciting statement for art dealers that the history of art owes a lot more to the efforts of art dealers than we have realised hitherto. And art dealers are a part of the history of art that need more attention. 
not just in the formation of taste in the art of the past, but of course in the promotion of contemporary art, of avant-garde art. I mean, I don't think the Impressionists would have had the success or would have emerged quite in the form that they did without the efforts of that dealer, Jean Ruel. I don't think that Picasso would have had quite the career he did in the successive phases that he that he enjoyed without the input of his dealers, people like Kahnweiler with Cubism and people like Paul Rosenberg in that very interesting period after the First World War when he definitely had an influence on what Picasso actually painted. So dealers are important. Dealers are significant elements in the evolution of the history of modern art. Our thanks to Philip Hook there discussing his book, Rogue's Gallery. Well, that's all from The Economist Asks this week. If you've any thoughts on the economics of art and the way it's changing in a time of transition, do get in touch via Twitter at Economist Radio. In London, this is The Economist. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.